0: Welcome, fantastic friends, to the new episode of the FanCast at Four podcast, the number one Fantastic Four fancasting podcast on the internet. Presumably. I'd say obliviously. I'm Dan Bettenhausen.
1: And I am Jack Mayer.
0: And we are your hosts as we venture into the what-ifs of Marvel's first family, who will be appearing in Phase 6 of the Marvel Cinematic Universe.
1: With Matt Shachman set to direct the MCU's Fantastic Four film, we still can explore what it would be like if a different director was behind the camera and who might they cast.
0: This week, our featured filmmakers are American directors, producers, and screenwriters whose films delve into the many different genres of which they tend to subvert or parody. Many of their films also explore the American South and West in both modern-day and historical tellings. Oh, and they also happen to be brothers.
1: Among their 19 feature film directing credits, Twelve of them have been nominated for a collective 42 Academy Awards and six wins, which include four best picture nominations and one win, and three best director nominations and one win.
0: This week we are featuring Joel and Ethan Cohen, better known as the Cohen Brothers. Jack, what else comes to mind when you think of the Cohen Brothers?
1: I think of off-kilter comedy, and I think it's really interesting because these guys have a wide breadth of genre that they work in. Uh it's really it's quite impressive for these guys to be able to jump to jump from genre to genre and yet still retain a trademark,
0: oh yeah. For as dark as some of their dramas are, there's a lot of dark humor too. I mean, m- with maybe some exceptions here, most of their films aren't without some humor.
1: their films are really funny and like they're the kind of humor that I love when it comes to movies. I think even, like I said, They have some, admittedly, darker dramas, but I still find those dramas to have a lot of really funny moments that I find myself giggling during. Like, one of the movies that we're going to talk about later, like, yes, it's a very serious drama, and it's very well done, and it's very gritty. It's also a little funny.
0: Yeah, and I think, especially in probably the last movie we're talking about, a lot of the humor is at probably the main character's expense, Mm-hmm. but it's never at least mean-spirited within the context of the film it's not it's not punching down mm-hmm.
1: and i think that that's what these guys are so good at is like creating humor that like will pile on a character for sure but also creating a world in which that humor could realistically exist
0: one thing i'd also say about these filmmakers is that they're fearless in the sense that They'll do whatever the hell they want. They're, they they yeah. don't they don't feel constrained by um, any standards or um, norms in cinema,
1: and they will keep making their movies because there will always be an audience for them. Like even movies that people don't generally love. I feel like the Coens don't really care because they're making their movies for themselves and for their audience that gets them. Like, one of my favorites that we're not going to talk about uh, in our next segment, but that I'll bring up here, is Burn After Reading. Oh, yeah.
0: That was hard not to include on the list.
1: Such a bizarre, weird movie that people did not like. Oh, and it's that so had good. It is so no good. No message to it, but that I adore. Well, you,
0: I think a lot of it is because you get these really quirky performances from some mm-hmm. actors that you don't typically see quirky performances from, like George Clooney, Brad Pitt especially, playing yeah. kind of the himbo character. For being a himbo, you don't see him play that a lot in his movies, and the, he did it for the Coen brothers.
1: And you just think about like all of the prestige actors that they work with, that they have to like all these ridiculous things. Like you've got Nick, you've got Nicolas Cage in one of my favorite performances of his in Raising mm-hmm. Arizona. You've got, like you said, Clooney, Brad Pitt, Damon in True Grit. Oh yeah, I'm just, oh yeah. I'm just naming the oceans cast at this point, but
0: well, and and you bring up True Grit, another one that like could have easily made our list that just didn't like. That's a remake. This that was I think maybe they're only delving into remaking a, a film too and. For my money, it's a better retelling of the story. I think Jeff Bridges is an excellent lead. Haley Steinfeld's debut, I mean, she kills it. And I think a lot of that's thanks to the Coen sensibilities or maybe lack thereof.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think that is a really good transition into our first segment, four fantastic films. And here we will discuss four great films directed by the Coen brothers. Uh, Now, we talked for quite a while about the four films to talk about. Uh, We kept going back and forth because there are so many good ones. Um, We're just going to mention real quick Fargo, uh, which was, I believe, their first movie to get nominated for Best Picture. Correct. Correct. Um, A movie that I'm sure we both love. Oh, yeah. Uh, I guess
0: it was a last minute cut uh, for another movie that we just felt we'd have more fun talking about, but Fargo deserves a honorable mention in
1: this list. So we are going to jump to the movie that came out right after Fargo, that, much like Burn After Reading, was not really critically loved or understood when it was released, but that I think has achieved maybe the biggest, most important cult status of the 21st century. Literally, there is a religion
0: that came from this movie. Literally, yeah, literally, yeah.
1: literal cult status. 1998's The Big Lebowski.
0: Admittedly, not my favorite movie, but I, after rewatching it in preparation, there was much more that I got from it that I, I really liked. And a lot of it stems from Jeff Bridges as Jeff Lebowski, the dude. Uh, but Jack, I'll, I'll let you talk more about it, but this rewatch definitely made me appreciate it more uh, as we prepared to talk about it.
1: Yeah, like I said, this is such a weird, offbeat comedy. Uh, And I think a lot of the comedy comes from the characters rather than the situation, because the situation is surprisingly dark. You know, you've got this uh, young woman who's been kidnapped and is going to get killed, and it's on the onus of this stoner bowler to save her. But what's so great about the movie in general is that things don't always necessarily get resolved. No. And I kind of love that about it. It's just this person sort of going through life and caring, but not too much. It's such an interesting main character and protagonist to follow.
0: Jeff Lebowski, the dude, is caring to a degree of self-interest that doesn't put him out too much, but he's still caught up in this quote-unquote kidnapping money exchanging currying and also dealing with his friend played by John Goodman who is the opposite
1: rattled Vietnam War vet
0: like when you have him screaming this is what happens when you fuck a stranger in the ass multiple times throughout the film as he's beating up a Corvette that wasn't the person he thought Corvette he was beating up like that will stick with you for a long time
1: it is one of my favorite scenes in this movie. It's so good. This movie is so good, and it's so quotable as well. Oh yeah. Roger and Tyler together. What my favorite though um, is actually near the beginning when the uh, when the nihilists come and give yeah. him the swirly, and they pick up the bowling ball out of his bag, and he just goes, "Obviously, you're not a golfer." <laughs> <laughs>
0: Just those asides, I, I kind of interjecting just about the Coens in general, and we will probably talk about this more as we talk about the other films, like there's just these aside comments and also just these side characters that I think are distinctly what makes a Coen Brothers movie a Coen Brothers movie. You have your leads, you have your supporting, but there's just these one scene side characters that make their movies because they are out, they're memorable, and... They they'll say something that just sticks with you.
1: The dude's landlord is my favorite one from this movie. Where it's just like you know he he shows up in that one scene to tell the dude that rents do, but then also mentions that he's doing a play like a one person show, and then Walter Donnie, and the dude at the one person show.
0: It's so good. And you you get you get a perform uh, a very I would say straight laced performance from Philip Seymour Hoffman. You get a very weird performance from Julianne Moore. This might be the best thing Tara Reid's ever done for the brief uh, bit she's in it.
1: Lee is also in there. Yeah.
0: So many great performances. Sa- yeah. Sam Elliott as this weird kind of angelic like, uh, cowboy <laughs> bowl- bowling alley patron.
1: <laughs> um, there, and like that's kind of what I love. It's like this movie is just John there. Turturro
0: as Jesus, like the weird. Bowler, like so, it's like, so good.
1: Him cleaning the bowling ball is like I'm a- is an image that i oh, think will yeah. like, be encased in your memory forever
0: and poor donnie poor poor
1: donnie. poor donnie i
0: actually i have a personal story watching this back a couple days ago um there's the spoilers just for you donnie gets murdered at the end and, by the nihilists by the nihilists and walter and the dude go out to um this cliffside to dump his ashes out but as walters releasing the ashes, the wind picks it up and blows it into the dude's face. here's a fun little side story for you uh, listeners, my father passed away a couple years ago, a year later, my mom brother and I went down to Florida to stay by the Gulf, a place he really liked. And we were going to dump some of his ashes into the Gulf of Mexico, we, we were out there uh, it's evening tide a time we're there where the tide is right, so we can he doesn't just kind of wash back up there and. Uh, my mom asks does anyone have anything she wants to say well I get up there and I recite a monologue from his favorite episode of Seinfeld where George goes and saves a whale from a golf ball that got stuck in its blowhole that Kramer had hit in earlier in the episode that is all to say after I finish I say on three let's dump him into the water mind you I am downwind So one, two, three, I bend down to dump my portion into the water, whereas my mother and brother throw it up in the air. Those ashes subsequently get picked by the wind and blow directly into my face, and the hot, sweaty person that is myself is now caked in the ashes of my father. That is all to say I very much empathize with the dude having Donnie's ashes now caked on him at the
1: end of this film. And did your uh, brother afterwards say "fuck it you want to go bowling
0: no they were laughing their asses off as i was staring off in horror so i was uh, less chill than the dude was in that moment
1: i'm sure, I'm sure.
0: <laughs> anyway i think that's a good stopping point with our big lebowski conversation and uh, i think we should move ahead to 2000 and talk about the movie that just made the cut and kicked out Fargo with "Oh brother, where art thou, Jack?" This was when you were pulling for. So again, I'm going to kind of let you lead this.
1: Yeah, this was, I believe, my first real exposure to the Coen Brothers. Uh, it was in a freshman English class, and we watched it because we were reading the Odyssey. And I just remember. So the the movie is for those who don't know, based on the Odyssey. Uh, it follows all of the standard beats of the hero's journey. It's a really good movie to watch if you're looking to break down sequencing for film. I just remember having my mind absolutely melted by the weird wackiness of this movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, it is so bizarre. Extremely bizarre. So, so strange. And again, this is coming right after The Big Lebowski, where they're on the heels of Fargo where audiences are still like, oh, these guys are like these super prestige awards directors. What are they going to make next? They make The Big Lebowski and everyone's like, okay, I guess that. And then now you have George Clooney, this like mega star actor in the lead. And he is playing one of the most ridiculous characters ever put to film. And I adore it. I think this is my favorite Coen Brothers movie by a mile
0: it's certainly up there for me i think it goes without saying the music is just fucking killer too
1: so, so this, you don't this even need album... to like
0: folk music or bluegrass music to enjoy this this the top to bottom the soundtrack for this movie is a plus
1: this album won a grammy this movie this album won album of the year at the grammy awards and rightfully right.
0: so i mean you have you have some awesome people you have um union station and Allison Krause, who are collaborators themselves, leading a lot of the songs. The Union Station is the Soggy Bottom Boys. Like they're the ones that are being um, dubbed over by the main three characters. Allison Krause plays one of the sirens along with Emmylou Harris and Jillian uh, Welch. And yeah, just, I don't know if I can say more. If you've never listened to it, you should and try something new. I mean, yeah, I mean, folk music might not be for everyone, but this is just
1: happy. Music, and this movie that might not be for everyone, but if you like a good like quirky offbeat comedy where KKK members get uh torched, then you'll mm. love this movie.
0: You have Michael uh Badalucco, uh really hating cows and you know really excited to go to the electric chair for being the greatest robber ever.
1: You have Tim Blake Nelson thinking that Jean Tchirro has turned into a frog. <laughs>
0: You was turned into a. For like, a, good, a good,
1: like 20 minutes of the movie. That that's Pete right there.
0: <laughs> the 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 boxing scene where George Clooney and his wife's uh, suitor like are just in like the the pharmacy or like the convenience store and like doing the old timey like fisticuffs up boxing and George Clooney's getting his ass kicked like all yeah, of it's so no good. Also,
1: the way that this movie is shot and presented, it's got like this like filter over it. Mm-hmm that gives it the old-timey Western sort of feel. And it's just, it's such good filmmaking. And I think that's something that I've really come to appreciate uh, is directors who are acutely aware that they are making movies, and instead of trying to lean into realism, instead leaning into, like, the campy weirdness of what movie making and art is. It's based on
0: an epic Greek poem. Like, play into... The fantastical of it all, and yeah, the Coen Brothers certainly did, and like I don't want to keep harping on George Clooney, but ninety nine percent of the stuff he is the the straight man, maybe a little comedy here, but this, and then you get to burn after reading, which we talked about the wildest performances he has done he had done to date.
1: Farce. That's like almost exactly what it is. Like he's just this guy who's obsessed with hair cream a very specific (laughs) dapper dan's hair hair cream cream. dapper dan
0: (laughs) and yeah in the end like it works out for him but still doesn't quite work out for him he just seems like a character that's always like coming up just a little short despite i'd say what's a happy ending yeah just another real fun movie way less dour than the next two we're about to talk about
1: Yes, yeah, so we're going to jump ahead to 2007, where the Coen brothers finally won the coveted Best Picture and Best Director Oscars with No Country for Old Men.
0: This movie, for the longest time, was my favorite movie ever. It was number one, primo supreme. Since it's gone down a few marks, especially after a rewatch, because I a lot more of the performances I appreciate than the story itself. That's still not to say that for the longest time was my favorite Coen Brothers film. Uh, I think you get some of the best performances top to bottom between uh, Javier Bardem, who won Best Supporting Actor, Josh Brolin as as the lead. You have Woody Harrelson in a great role. I think my favorite performance might honestly be Tommy Lee Jones as the sheriff. You get some comedy with Garrett Dillahunt in there. I, yeah, it is such a thriller, Western, existential examination on modern times and conversely where the music made stuff something like oh brother where art thou the lack of a score in no country for old men really extremely effective
1: really really effective in this movie
0: along with that this movie still might have arguably my favorite scene in all of film uh, it's the scene where javier bertems anton sugar walks into a gas station And he's talking with the the owner the proprietor of the gas station about uh, what he's been putting up his whole life kind of giving him shit for marrying into. uh, Running the gas station and you get the first like coin flip on whether this guy lives or dies and just without going into too much detail there, it is an incredible scene, I think, probably one of the things that won him the Oscar. And something I just go back to and watch from time to time because
1: it's incredible. It's so good. Yeah. Call it friendo. <laughs> oh, so good. Yeah, I really, really love this movie as well. Uh, like I said, it's very dark. It is a very Extreme. dark movie and is probably the most serious movie that they've made. But as Dan said, you get Garrett DelHunt in there and you have a little bit of comedy. Like, these characters are still kind of quirky. Anton Chigurh, for all of, like, the destruction and evil that he brings, is still kind of a quirky character. And Javier Bardem plays into those quirks. Like, it is it is such an effective movie. And it is also really interesting, I will point out, uh, this movie and a movie that's very similar to it came out in the same year, There Will Be Blood. Uh, and, you know, they were up against each other, basically a like whole awards season uh, and this one ended up winning out the Oscars. And I think rightfully so, because I think it's probably a little bit better of a movie than there will be blood, even though I do like there will be blood.
0: Daniel Day-Lewis deserved best actor hands down, but I, yeah, I will go to my grave saying no country for women's a better movie top to bottom. Mm-hmm, I agree with that. Um, and I think the last thing I want to touch on is the ending. I think a lot of people were turned off by this movie, especially because of this ending monologue tommy lee jones's character uh gives to to his wife at the end it's about like why he retired he he was done he was looking for something to do and he was telling her about these dreams he had it's essentially just i think a microcosm of the whole film where um, he's talking about he met his dad who uh at the age his dad died which was much younger than he was currently in the movie and how his dad went on ahead to go and um essentially that he'd meet him there at some point so kind of an examination on his life where things were and how you know times are changing it's not like they were when they were younger men and there's not a lot of space for him now as as older men and then he woke up because he's still in it and uh I think you all really should go and give it a listen really really take a listen to this monologue that he has at the end because for as much as people I'll say the general watch viewing populace didn't like it at the time. I think it's really what makes the movie by the end of
1: it. Finally, we're going to jump to 2013 with Inside Lewin Davis. Uh, Dan, this is another one that I think you were pulling forth.
0: This movie was severely underappreciated, maybe still is severely underappreciated. Easily now my favorite Coen Brothers film. I, I think because of its simplicity, it's about a, a folk singer Another hey, another theme we're back on with the Cohen brothers, who is down on his luck. His partner had killed himself, and now he's just trying to find work and exist, bumming bumming money, mm-hmm. bumming couches. Um, got his best friend's girlfriend pregnant, and it's just about this little adventure he has trying to get representation, get a gig, get maybe get an album made, I and help and, people. Start. Right? Yeah. Well, he found that he lost his uh, friend's cat and found the uh the wrong cat then found the right the right cat came back yeah those and the cat also named ulysses who was george clooney's character's name in oh brother where art thou so more parallels with oh
1: brother where art thou and it feels like a spiritual sequel in a lot of ways
0: yeah definitely definitely and i don't understand why this movie didn't get more awards love i thought the cinematography which i believe was nominated incredible
1: yeah, you we have- haven't touched on this at all, but Roger Deakins has done oh. the cinematography for nearly every Coen Brothers movie. There is not a better working director of photography. No. Like, point blank. Easily. easily.
0: Great music. I mean, whereas Oh Brother Worth, that was more light, definitely kind of an old-timey folk feel. The music in Inside Llewyn Davis has much more pain to it. There's a line that he says, if it doesn't feel new and it never gets old... Uh, then that's a folk song. And again, just kind of what this movie is about. It's him living in the past, not able to move forward. And again, great characters, especially Oscar Isaac as Lewin Davis. And then it plays with time a little bit that I forgot about after the rewatch that is really incredible. It's a really nice bait and switch. And last thing I want to touch on that might segue into what you want to say is easily the funniest song performance in Please, Mr. Kennedy with him, <laughs> Justin Timberlake, and Adam Driver. Uh, outer space. One <laughs> so, second,
1: please. Oh, my God. Uh, it's so good. Uh, I have a little bit of a story about that one. Um, so I have had a voice teacher for quite some time. Uh, and one day he sent me that clip. And said, "I think this is something that you and your friends would 100% do." He did not realize that it was from a movie, oh, no. <laughs> uh, and just thought it was a bad song. <laughs> <laughs> and I was next voiceless. I told him, "Yeah, I know. I've seen that movie." And he was like, "That's from a movie,"
0: which goes to show that this movie's severely underseen too. Go see this
1: movie. Go watch uh, Inside Llewyn Davis. It's fantastic. It, it
0: is propelled into my top five after the rewatch, because I loved it so much. But yeah, like in that scene too, you have, just to show how brazen and such an asshole that Lewin is, like, he's getting this help from Justin Timberlake's character, his buddy, and he's like, who wrote this piece of shit song? And he's like, I did. It's like, oh, it's great, yeah, cool, fine, whatever. It's, I believe, only like an hour and 40 minutes, but it's just a gut punch of a movie. Anything else about this movie that I didn't bogart?
1: <laughs> I, I think I think you covered it on. You know, probably more Coen Brothers films we could talk about, oh, but easily. I think like, we, we could have, have talked get about into our a lot fantastic more fantastic castings.
0: Yeah, yeah, let's get into those. Uh, here each of us will cast the four main members of the Fantastic Four, Reed Richards, Sue Storm, Johnny Storm, Ben Grimm, and their nemesis, Dr. Doom, an actor or actress the Coens have worked with previously and who have not had a major role in the MCU. As always,
1: Jack, I'm going to turn it over to yeah. you first actually, I think you should go first for this one, Dan.
0: Okay, no problem, no problem. Um, I will go first, which has me extremely excited and nervous at the same time. So for my Reed Richards, uh, I'm going with an actor who probably is most famously known for his minor work in the Harry Potter films as uh, Cousin Dudley, but he was also been in The Tragedy of Macbeth and The Ballad of Buster Scruggs, and that is Harry Melling. For this specific film that I am going to be pitching, I'm looking for a little more weird. No offense to Harry Melling. He is not as traditionally handsome as some of the previously cast Reed Richards, but I do think he has a persona that could certainly work in this film. He's Um, also excellent
1: in Queen's Gambit.
0: Oh, yes, yes, totally.
1: Very, yeah, very good call.
0: For my Sue Storm, This one is not going to be as big of a love interest here. They're going to be more working together than romantically linked. I'm casting an actress who was in The Big Lebowski, and more just because I wanted to. I'm casting Tara Reid because I wanted to give Tara Reid some work. She's probably still working on residuals from... Uh, Sharknado, but you know maybe we'll give her uh, a Cohen brother, another Coen brother movie.
1: She's got Josie and the Pussycats stuff. <laughs> that
0: too, that too. For Johnny Storm, uh, I'm casting an actor we just talked about from Inside Lewin Davis, Justin Timberlake. Again, maybe there's going to be some music in here. Who knows? We might get some singing. I'm sure he's tired of being a troll. Maybe not, but uh, I'm going to go with Justin Timberlake for Ben Grimm. I believe I've probably cast this actor before. I know he's been cast at some point as Ben Grimm between me and one of my guests, but I'm going with an actor who is in Hail Caesar, and that's Jonah Hill. I think Jonah Hill would be a great Ben Graham. You've got a little humor, a little uh, someone who can certainly play kind of down on his luck. Um, and then finally for Doctor Doom, I am throwing a curveball. I am casting three Doctor Dooms. They're going to be three separate characters, all named the Doctor's Doom. Uh, that is John Malkovich, Rafe Fines, and Woody Harrelson, all as the Doctor's Doom. Excellent. Now, let us uh, hear what, what we've been waiting for.
1: Now. Sure, okay, let's let's do this. Um, so, you know, when you're building a Coen Brothers uh, Fantastic Forecast, you really have to think about the ensemble. And you have to think about a quirky cast of characters. So uh, to start off, we'll start with Reed Richards. You know, you want to pick somebody who's got that sort of leader quality, but who's got a real sensitive side to them. So as my Reed Richards, I picked an actor who's in The Big Lebowski, uh, and I picked Philip Seymour Hoffman. Now, Philip Seymour Hoffman, of course, has sadly not with us anymore, but we've, you know. We've, necroman-
0: we've right? necromanced characters and actors before.
1: We're, we're fine with that on the FanCast4 right. podcast. We, we will gladly bring people back from the dead. Uh, no AI, none of that. The Coen no. brothers would never do that. We're bringing people back from the dead and we're bringing back Philip Seymour Hoffman to play Reed Richards in this. Dark magic here. No, uh... Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Uh, so now you got to move to Sue Storm and you want to cast somebody who's got a sensitive side to them, but who can also bring the power of Sue Storm. And I don't think there's a better choice for that than Philip Seymour Hoffman. Interesting. Uh, so I'm playing my Sue Storm.
0: Okay. Okay. Interesting. All right, Great so choice.
1: Thank you, yeah. So let's move on to her brother Johnny now. I wonder Uh, who you
0: could have cast.
1: You know, you might actually be surprised at this one, Dan. I know that I just cast Philip Summer Hoffman as both Reed and Sue, but I actually, I I did want to cast Philip Summer Hoffman as my Johnny Storm as well because I think that he brings such a gravitas. Again, I don't know if you've seen uh, Punch Drunk Love, but he's got this great scene at the end where he just unloads this anger and just starts screaming at Adam Sandler. Uh, I think that he if he brings that sort of energy that he brought in that movie to uh, Johnny Storm, it would be fantastic.
0: Yeah, no, I uh, agree. I agree. Like a great casting.
1: Thank you. Thank you. I agree. So now we get to Ben Grimm, heart of the Fantastic Four, as you constantly say. And I don't think there's a person who brings more heart to a movie than an uh, actor who's in The Big Lebowski. And that would be, of course, Philip Sumer Hoffman.
0: I, I would not have guessed
1: you get, but like, just think, think about, think about the guy as Ben Grimm. Like, imagine this sort of like person who's got such depth and range to every performance.
0: I'm actually like, getting a lot of like "Along Came Polly" vibes from a Ben Grimm, Philip Seymour Hoffman.
1: See, yeah, I was thinking a little bit more like Magnolia. Oh, like that sort of like patriarch in a way.
0: Yeah.
1: uh And then as Doctor Doom, again, you want somebody who can be a charming villain, somebody who you would like almost expect would lead a cult. And I don't know if you've seen The Master, Dan, but in that movie, Philip Seymour Hoffman plays a cult leader. So I would cast him as my Doctor Doom.
0: I mean, it's hard to argue with any of your choices. All of them seem so fitting.
1: Right? I, I I think that it would really work. So, Mike House, just to run it back down, uh, Reed Richards, got Philip Seymour Hoffman, right. Sue Storm, Philip Seymour Hoffman, Johnny Storm, Philip Seymour Hoffman, Ben Grimm, Philip Seymour Hoffman, and Dr. Doom, Philip Seymour Hoffman.
0: All brought back via
1: dark necromantic magic. Via dark magic, yes. Yeah. Cool. Well, with our film's cast, it is now time <laughs> <laughs>
0: Continue, please.
1: Well, with our films cast, now it is time to pitch our Coen Brothers-Helmed Fantastic Four films.
0: Before we get into those pitches, I have two questions. And, well, I I have way more than two questions right now, but I'll stick with the two questions. First, is your film an origin film? Yes and no. Okay. Second, is it part of the MCU?
1: No. Uh, No, same for you. Is your film an origin film? N- no. No, not really and is your film part of the MCU?
0: At the beginning, by by convention, but not not in actuality. Good to know, all right. Uh, Would you like me to go first, having cast first, or would you like to go with your pitch? I'll yeah you, you know
1: I tend, to, I tend to go first why don't you why don't you kick us off then
0: okay so i didn't go extensively mostly because i was more excited talking about the movies if you couldn't tell from our conversation so this is very much just a a, a pitch i'm not going into a whole kind of breakdown but the movie opens with a, a group of villains breaking into the baxter building uh, Mole Man, Puppet Master, Psycho Man, Impossible Man, Wizard, uh, all played by various actors who have been in Coen Brothers movies, who are not main MCU uh, actors as well, breaking in to try and steal some some tech to sell off from the Baxter building. They get in there, they're confronted by the Fantastic Four, but they don't know what they're looking for. They're literally just Dumb criminals trying to, you know, take something to maybe sell it on some black market, and they find this device and reads like, "Don't, don't, don't touch that." And they're like, "Well, they're dumb criminals, so of course they press the big button, and they're teleported into a different dimension, a different multiverse. They get there and it's very reminiscent of this kind of, "Oh brother, where art thou?" kind of era. But when they land, they see this big, big top tent, you know, kind of the red and white stripes. It's a traveling carnival and they see it, they get up and they're confronted by this man in this metal mask, he announces himself he's Dr. Doom and he has a proposition for these people there's obviously there's more you know conversations in between, but this is just the broad strokes of the story, long story short, he wants to steal. Uh, he is one of he's he, he and his brothers the doctors doom want to steal from. The kingpin the head of the carnival the kingpin being played by uh, john goodman and these doctors doom are tired of listening to him they want to go off their own um, and not be indentured to the kingpin anymore and steal from him well these dumb criminals again respectively played by steven root tony shalhoub tim blake nelson fisher stevens and steve buscemi all um, agree because they're stuck there essentially and they need ways to make make money and they go and they're wandering through kind of getting the lay of this this carnival this traveling circus um and they come across other acts like the from the freak shows that the features of this um this troupe. you get ant-man who's john totura who's just this guy whose act is like an ant circus nothing crazier than that you get alden ehrenreich as the daredevil this blind acrobat Spider-Man, played by Garrett Hedlund, similar deal. It's like a duo between Daredevil and Spider-Man. And then you have these two strong women, uh, She-Hulk and She-Thing, played by Alison Pill and Kelly McDonald. But the the big act, the the main tent attraction is the Fantastic Four. It's Reed Richards, Sue, Johnny, uh, Ben Grimm, um, who are kind of the, the thing people come from far and wide to see. You have Reed, the contortionist, Sue, the illusionist, and uh, her partner assistant Johnny, who uh, not only being his assistant also is like a spits fire and self, uh, self can bust, and then you also have this really strong man, he's stronger even compared to She-Hulk and She-Thing, but he's also extremely disfigured and deformed, and that's the Thing is his name. But again, despite his his appearance, he is extremely strong, very gentle giant, but is forced to do these feats of strength. Well, as, the, as they explore this carnival, they lay out a plan to steal from the Kingpin, and they're successful. However, there's infighting between the Doctor's Doom and the troop ends up running away because the they couldn't make up their mind how to handle the money so this group of villains from a different multiverse is away with the money so the doctors doom hire the fantastic four to try and figure out where they went and it's just this inner essentially this interplay between these dumb villains trying to get away with the money, trying to rob from their boss, the boss trying to then hire the Fantastic Four additionally to handle this dumb crime, that uh, kind of reminiscent of like the lady killers um, or burn after reading, just these idiots essentially trying to get away with a crime. And then you have the Fantastic Four, who are these, um, part of this freak circus, being the heroes in the end. Unfortunately, our villains are then stuck in this multiverse, but the Fantastic Four become successful. They lead the other acts away, are able to be self-employed and run the circus themselves in nicer conditions. And that is the story. Criminals being dumb and the good guys being goofy, but also very heroic, like in a lot of, uh, I'll say the more comedic Coen Brothers films.
1: That sounds like a ripper and good time at the cinema. Yeehaw! (laughs) <laughs> like I
0: said very much um, an idea uh it's it's hard to be as clever as the Coen Brothers so I didn't want to try too hard didn't want to overthink it and come up short because I'm never going to write as well as the Coen Brothers I I, I don't know my
1: any of us will
0: exactly so I wanted to give broad strokes here uh thought it was very fitting like kind of the American West the American South like that old time period uh, playing off of that, playing off of idiots being idiots, thinking they luck out and then they come up and skid them, and just yeah, a lot of quips, humor, satire, dark comedy, um, all kind of wrapped up into one. So uh, with that said, I wanna I wanna hear your extremely diversified cast and pitch for a Coen Brothers
1: film. Sure, of course. So, uh, my film takes place in the 1960s. Uh, around the time when the Fantastic Four comics were first created and released. And for those who don't know, the Fantastic Four's first big enemy were the scrolls. Now, what are the scrolls? The scrolls are these uh, characters who are able to transform and look like anyone that they so please. So, this is not really even a fantastic four movie. It's a movie about scrolls, and all of the scrolls look like Philip Seymour Hoffman. They look like him, they talk like him, they walk like him. Every single scroll, male, female, non binary, all look like Philip Seymour Hoffman. But there's a group of these four scrolls who decide they want to change their appearance up a little bit. They want to be seen as different from the rest so they transform and what they basically do is they dan has turned off his camera i want everyone to know this who's listening at home what they do is they change into people who look like a mix between the fantastic four heroes that we know and love and philip seymour hoffman so, you know, you've got our Reed Richards, who looks like comic Reed Richards, but Philip Seymour Hoffman. Sue Storm looks like comic Sue Storm, but she's Philip Seymour Hoffman. And the movie is them sort of trying to convince the rest of the planet that they are superheroes. That they have these sort of incredible powers, even though they don't. And again, that's what the Cohen brothers are really good at. Taking these sort of loser characters and trying to put them into situations where they will ultimately fail, but believe in their success. So you've got Reed Richards, Philip Seymour Hoffman, who's trying to make his arm stretch further than it will, and he's not really able to pull it off, but he's got some sort of trickery going on behind the scenes with the others that help it look like he's pulling it off. And you've got Sue Storm sort of turning invisible, but she's not really turning invisible. Again, it's just some sort of illusion that Johnny and Ben are able to help her pull off. But then eventually you you meet one of these scrolls named Victor Von Doom, who's mad because he actually does have some sort of power. He's actually a genius and he's mad that this group of fakes is trying to take away all this glory and he gets introduced i would say around like start of act 2 you know the first act is like the establishment of the fantastic 4 act 2 is more so the uh introduction of doctor doom and sort of seeing the ways in which he is like a, like getting ready to plot his revenge against the fantastic 4 who are being seen by the rest of the philips and rohopins scrolls as superheroes so dr doom basically uh, creates his doom bots in a way to expose the fantastic four the Doombots, of course look like philip seymour hoffman uh and they successfully ex- expose the fantastic four and that i think is kind of where we leave it off i think that you know the second and third acts will show sort of that conflict but i don't want the fantastic four to ultimately succeed in their goal I want them to kind of just go back to living their Philip Seymour Hoffman scroll lives that they were living before the movie. Because, again, what's the message of Burn After Reading? I guess we learn not to do this again. That's sort of the message that I want the Fantastic Four to learn by by the end of this movie. And the message of Doctor Doom should sort of be, all right, I did that. Time to go back to my regular life. Again, the Coen brothers are so good at these sort of like offbeat... Comedies, period pieces. Again, I want this to have like a very sort of 60s feel to it, but the characters don't really learn anything. They just sort of do what they do in their little superhero dumb. And yeah, that's my movie, The Fantastic Four, but with the scrolls that look like Philip Seymour Hoffman.
0: That's like your opinion, man. Uh, sorry. <laughs> yes, I did. I. <laughs> I did have to turn off my camera out of respect for you because i was laughing my ass off the whole time you were going and i did not want to impact your retail your telling of your pitch so um it was of my, out of, of respect my, for you camera. my piece of art sorry yes yes your piece of of uh, philip seymour hoffman inspired art wonderful uh, i really like that i like the tie-in to burn after reading um a movie i would have loved to talk about as well
1: top notch Brothers just make it seem like there's going to be a message in the movie, but then there's just
0: not. no. Like, like again, like that, like Big Lebowski. Like sometimes just shit happens and we don't need to deal with it. It just kind of figures itself out. Do we know how sometimes? No, we don't. But it's not our problem.
1: Anymore. It is one of my favorite line readings. is just JK someone's just been like, what do we learn here? to do it again. <laughs> All right, you're dismissed. That's sort of the vibe that I.
0: No, I love it and. God rest his soul Philip Seymour Hoffman I think would have been great doing all of that um so that that's what is it makes me both happy and sad is that we would never we don't have the chance to actually see that because unless I don't know something about you Jack neither of us are practitioners in dark magic um
1: well I think that's about <laughs> it So, <laughs> <laughs> so let's really enjoy our exploration into this what if scenario
0: We want to make a special note that the FanCast of Four podcast is hosted for free on Spotify, formerly Anchor, and we encourage you, if you have your own podcast idea, to check out Spotify podcasts. It is really a great resource for getting your idea off the ground. You can also find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube.
1: If you are listening on YouTube, we would greatly appreciate you hitting the subscribe button and commenting with who your Cullen Brothers cast would be on what you thought of our lists and pitches, and on which director you'd like to see next.
0: I also want to thank Matt Hart and Maddie Gunner for the fantastic theme music they created for us. And I want to thank you all for listening. I'm Dan Bettenhausen.
1: I'm Jack Mayer, and we hope you all stay fantastic.